This Week in Oklahoma Politics on KOSU is sponsored by the State Chamber of Oklahoma. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics. Along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and sitting in for Ryan Kiesel is ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Tamaya cox Teray. Termination proceedings have ended for Epic Schools after a settlement with the Oklahoma Statewide Virtual Charter School Board. The board approved the bargain earlier this week and struck the May 12th and 13th termination hearing from its schedule. Neva, what's involved in this agreement? Well, I mean, it is a pretty, pretty involved agreement. I mean, we've talked about for several weeks now that the potential closure of the largest, uh, uh, the largest charter school in the in the state was uh, kind of at the brink if this May 12th and 13th <laughs> trial commenced. So what we had is uh, we had the parties come together. And out of this settlement, when you really look at it, uh, we see that uh, one of the big demands was that you had the, the two boards basically had been operating with a five-person single, you know, mm-hmm. a single board for both. The uh, settlement agreement says that there will be two separate boards. There will be seven individuals on each board. They cannot be on both boards. I mean, that is a major. I mean, that is a major shift in terms of talking about transparency and being able to really have financial accountability. I think when you also look at the fact that. Uh, uh, that you have a, a, a situation where one of the controversies has been around uh, the learning fund mm-hmm. and the and the, what what really uh, all of the swirling of investigations and allegations and and uh, Epic saying that uh, of course that they denied all of these allegations but at the end of it what has come out is the fact that uh, that they now no longer the two individuals co-founders of Epic will no longer be in control of this learning fund but in fact uh, the school you know the school folks will be uh, will be in control. So I think what we see is a lot more control, a lot more transparency, a lot of things that people were concerned about, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the things that caused this great controversy from the from from really the uh, the outset of, mm-hmm. of all of this. Uh, many of those things appear to be resolved in this settlement. So I think it's uh, I, I think the long and the short of it is uh, it it had uh, a lot of good takeaways. I think I thought one of the interesting Interesting things talking about the learning fund to me one of the concessions that appeared is that when they talked about the financial records becoming public on July 1 uh, it also said that anything prior to that that it occurred would remain private so it, it still leaves a lot of questions that may never be never be answered in terms of what took place with those funds and of course one of the contentions was that those were taxpayer funds that might have been inappropriately spent uh, um, some said embezzled I mean all mm-hmm. of the, all of the charges that uh, as we as we've said uh, swirled around all of this but um, I think at the end of the day, from the standpoint of the folks, the 2,200 staff, the 55,000 students uh, involved and their families, uh, it's good news for well, what's occurred with this settlement. Tamaya. Yeah, I agree. I think the biggest um, thing we learned was that with a um, the virtual school as big as it was, mm-hmm. that education was at risk um, if the settlement didn't happen. So. Transparency is always important. Accountability is always important. And I think that's what the settlement agreement did. I also think it's important to know that um, there was kind of concerns of commingling of the funds. And that was one of the big things that came out of it. Um, so, to, so the idea that um, 
that, that the settlement will allow for that not to be happening, I think is really good. I do also think it's very um, concerning, though, about mm-hmm. the July 1 date where, where taxpayer money will not be, uh, folks will not be allowed to know what happened prior to that. Um, however, it's about moving forward. And, and the fact that, you know, 50,000 plus students could have been at risk of trying to find new ways and education and virtual education we've learned through the pandemic is such an important the role that it plays. Um, I, I think the settlement happened at the best time that it could have. But there's still investigations going on for this thing, like from the AG's office and things like that. So there's still thing, things that might hamper Epic, Epic's problems right now. That's true. And I think that's important. But I think at the, you know, during the school year, that's where the focus has been about what is going on. So the focus is let's get through the rest of the school year. Um, let's finish this out. Um, so the kids and, and those that are most in need are not necessarily at risk. Uh, potentially trying to find new ways of, of getting their education. But I think it is a good point that you said that we're going to continue to investigate. However, um, I think a lot of us are r- really ready for, for the settlement to be done, but all of this to be done. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's where we are. Well, and I think the other thing that we've talked about is the legislature really had kind of stepped back from all of this and took the wait-and-see yeah. uh, attitude of let's mm-hmm. see what what's worked out, let's see what goes through the courts, let's see what happens with investigations, and not just jump ahead of all of this that's and right. try to make assumptions or try to fix a problem that still was being defined if it was a mm-hmm. problem and to what extent that problem uh, was and what needed to occur. So it, it will be interesting to see in the next legislative session as all of this kind of begins to settle out uh, that if the settlement, obviously, uh, the terms have to be met, uh, mm-hmm. there has to be uh, the transparency. And if all of that occurs, will there be a need to go beyond that in terms of talking to what's best for education, specifically uh, all types of education? And I think that's what we've seen in the legislature this year is a more open dialogue about we have to have multiple multiple options out there for Oklahoma ch- children to be able to uh, be educated in the best fashion possible. And I think this has been part of that larger conversation. Definitely agree. Uh, Governor Stitt has spent the past week signing several bills of high-profile legislation sent to him by lawmakers. Uh, let's start with Senate Bill 947, requiring anyone submitting a state question to voters indicate if the measure will have a fiscal impact on the state. The new law also requires the initiative petition to say how the funds will be raised for the state question if it passes. Tamaya, how will this impact the process of gathering signatures? I think this is going to be another hurdle for those that are um, trying to go through with the initiative petition process. The initiative petition process in Oklahoma um, is already cumbersome. We don't have a lot, even though we've seen some successes in the last few years um, with the process, um, we know that adding this extra hurdle could really be devastating for some. And I really mean in the sense that, of course, we want fiscal transparency. Anytime that um, policy has a fiscal impact, uh, people should know. But I think it is unfair for for those that are trying to change policy to know the true mechanisms as required by this new bill or, you know, soon to be law. To, To ask, you know, people that want to expand Medicaid or people that want to, you know, legalize recreational marijuana to know how it's going to be um, paid for. Um, I think a lot of folks believe that's the legislature's job. So even though, yes, um, transparency is important, why not just leave it as it is? And what what's the purpose of creating this extra hurdle? I think the Medicaid expansion, um, the most recent initiative petition is a good example that we know those funds rightfully should be left to the legislature on how to pay for it. 
legislature's in the best position to determine what, um, where to appropriate the funds. I don't think it's the people that are just trying to make sure that they get health care. Uh, Neva. Well, and I think the, the Medicaid expansion probably was the catalyst uh, for this whole uh, for this whole conversation. And it, when you look at it, and when you look at how evenly split Oklahomans were when they went to the polls, I mean, it only passed by fifty. 0.49%, kind of that number that we throw around oftentimes, because it does kind of set the stage about the fact that if, if in fact, Oklahomans had a better understanding or had read on the ballot uh, uh, language what the implications were in terms of uh, was it a, going to require a tax increase? Where were the funds going to come from? Would that have made a difference? And so I think this is the argument lawmakers that supported this idea uh, had in mind, is that uh, give give the public, uh, as they get ready to go to the polls on an initiative question, uh, to uh, have as much information as possible, rather than rely on the give and take of, of advertising and, and all of the different forms of communication in a campaign setting, uh, and we saw that certainly with the Medicaid expansion, with the uh, um, uh, legalization of medical marijuana, with the uh, uh, the different measures that were the crim criminal justice reform uh, measures that have uh, uh, been voted on in recent years. So I I think this does uh, I think this does add information, uh, add particulars to the equation that, uh, frankly, voters are often looking for. I mean, and asking the question or have that in their mind but don't have an answer and can't rely on just someone's expectation or assertion that this might be the case, but rather something that is much more focused. And even in, in legislation, you have to have a fiscal impact study. You have to know what the implications are. Is this going to be revenue neutral or is it going to have uh, uh, implications from a budget study? standpoint. So this is no different. Now, to the question that of, often is argued in terms of initiative petitions being very difficult to pass. I mean, we've only had 25 passed in the state of Oklahoma um, uh, all the way, you know, uh, kind of all the way through time. So it's not something that's easily achieved, but the vehicle is there for people who feel very passionately, very strongly that there needs to be a change or needs to be something that uh, that is uh, uh, added, and that mechanism is in place. And I don't think that really changes, uh, it, it doesn't change it because we all, I think, accept the idea that it is a challenge and difficult to do, but not impossible if you have the support that is broad-based enough to get it done. Right, and medical marijuana is a good example. The cost to pass this bill to create the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana so authority, but what would not have been mentioned, or this is not allowed, not mentioned in this, is how much money ended up getting raised through the Oklahoma through medical marijuana. For sure, I think that's a great point. The fiscal impact is important. I do question the timing. Um, I think that's always important as to why we've seen, like I said, successful initiative petitions mm -hmm. where maybe the legislature has dropped the ball, specifically around Medicaid expansion. At least with the fiscal impact, I think it's asking that um, this legislation is actually or. Yes, legislation is asking more from people that are from the petitioners, because with a fiscal impact, you know, through legislation, it's simply saying, what is the impact? How much could this potentially cost? It's not saying, how are we going to fund it? It's not required, at least through legislation, that they're required to say, we're raising taxes here. We're going to remove, you know, appropriated fundings from this agency to pay it this way. So while, yes, the fiscal impact is necessary for legislation, this one goes a little bit further than what's required by our, by our state lawmakers. Governor Stitt signed several bills making it harder to get abortions. House Bill 2441 outlaws abortion once a heartbeat can be detected about six weeks into pregnancy. 
House Bill 1904 requires abortions only be performed by OBGYNs, but House Bill 1102 revokes the medical license as punishment for performing any abortions. Meanwhile, Senate Bill 918 outlaws all abortions if the U.S. Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade. Neva, do you expect these laws to be challenged in court? Well, I think given past history, yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think uh, I don't th- think anyone will be surprised, including the governor. But let's remember, and the governor said this on Monday when he signed the bills, that he ran saying that if a pro-life bill hit his desk, you could count on him signing it. He made it very clear that he wants to be the most pro-life governor in the country. Uh, he wants Oklahoma to be the most pro-life state. And we've talked through the years, even on this program, about the fact that it is, uh, I I think it is inarguable that that this is a pro-life state in terms of the majority of Oklahomans uh, appreciating, wanting, and supporting this type of pro-life legislation. I think lawmakers, when they get elected, that's one of the the campaign issues that they're most uh, most, uh, asked about, Mm -hmm. uh, is their position uh, on on this particular uh, particular matter. And I think uh, it's very clear. Uh, where Oklahomans are. So it's not a surprise. We see this every session. Uh, we see some that are challenged, but but by and large, I think uh, what we're seeing is that the lawmakers are reflecting the public sentiment across the board on matters of pro-life. Jemaya. Yeah, I think what this legislation shows is that Oklahoma legislators are all over the place when it comes to access to abortion. We have bills that either outright ban it to bills to show that it's unprofessional misconduct. What we know collectively and what is different as someone that's been lobbying on these issues for the, for the last 15 years um, is that in the past that they've used the guise of like this is a safety issue. This is about women's health and women's safety where we saw for the first time on every single one of these bills, the intent was to end um, or decrease the number of abortions in Oklahoma. Um, I think the concern that many of us have is that when bills like these are passed um, and, and, and signed into law, they only um, outlaw legal and safe abortions. When folks want it in their pregnancies, they're gonna find a way. So it'd have been nice for, I think, legislators to find, by, by truly being pro-life, to find ways that they could um, better access to healthcare and better access to comprehensive sex education. I think you're right. I think many people are anticipating. I know our organization is already talking about what our mm-hmm. next steps are. We also know that there's potentially two other, um, two to three other anti-abortion bills. These are about the same numbers we saw in 2009, so right after President Obama was elected in his first term into office, his first 100 days in the office. So we've been anticipating what we've called like the Biden backlash. Um, so when legislators um, of a different party tend to, um, uh, th- this is where they, this is where we're seeing that they are really kind of um, ensuring that they are showing how conservative they are. And Oklahoma is not different than many other states. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, we haven't seen the sheer number of anti-abortion bills in such a long time. How many other organizations will uh, file lawsuits against mm-hmm. them? New bills signed by the governor appear to crack down on protests. So first off, one new law increases the penalty for obstructing a public street or highway while protesting. Then there's a measure to stop posting anything online in an attempt to harass, threaten, or stalk police. And finally, another grants immunity to drivers who unintentionally cause injury or death to protesters. Tamaya, do you expect these measures to hold up to judicial scrutiny? I don't. I don't. These are questions that, again, these anti-protest bills are very um, common. This has been the trend across the country. We know that these are directly related due due to the uprisings we saw this summer. Um, However, Oklahoma actually has the most across the country um, 
and some of them are the harshest penalties. Um, Florida's a little bit ahead of us where they just, their governor just signed theirs into law um, uh, this week and a little bit of last week, and theirs are a little bit more with an omnibus. I think it's really important to know that, um, and specifically around the, the bill that gives immunity to drivers, um, there's already laws in place that allow um, um, uh, drivers that are in fear for their lives to you know, exit and flee necessary. And most importantly, prosecutors have the discretion to charge if they want to. So the incident that happened in Tulsa, where this bill is directly related to, um, the DA's office, they did not charge the driver. Once going through the facts, it was decided not to charge. So our um, theme this year has been uh, no new fines, no new crimes. And we think it's unnecessary for, for a bill like this to even um, go through because we already have uh, prosecutorial discretion. The concern is, is this going to be treated the same way from a Black Lives Matter protest to folks that are um, protesting outside of an abortion clinic? Our fear and our concern is that people will not be treated equally under these laws, and will the impact be against black and brown folks? Neva. Well, I think in the instance you talk about the Tulsa case where the uh, DA declined to prosecute, um, and in the Senate debate, one of the things that was said was that, uh, that this bill would, in fact, uh, protect innocent people uh, who were trapped by a mob or whatever. In other words, uh, while this instance uh, went, you know, went the way that uh, people hoped it would, that might not be the case with another DA in another county or another DA in Tulsa County one day. So I think it was that kind of proactive look. I think the other, the other side of it is when talking about obstructing um, the use of a public street or highway and talking about what they did in terms of the bill itself, it's a misdemeanor um, up to, I think, a year in county jail and the fine somewhere I think a hundred to five thousand dollars or some seem to be the numbers. But when you look at that again, it is trying to I think uh, uh, address something that there is significant concern among the among the public uh, now. Whether that's fostered by the larger picture of what's happening nationally, and we've seen less of that being an issue certainly here in Oklahoma. I think what uh, we saw with lawmakers is uh, the effort to step ahead and say we want to uh, we want to address this looking forward. Forward rather than having to react to something and uh, you know face looking backward. So, um, so I think I mean I think we'll continue to see these bills. I think law enforcement related bills where we're talking about not uh, not having information uh, out on social media or other things that uh, jeopardize or put uh, some of these law enforcement folks potentially at, at uh, risk or in peril uh, certainly are going to get strong support and I think have strong public sentiment across the board because I. I think that's I think there's an expectation that that's what we want as a society and I think that's what lawmakers again are responding to well I think about Tulsa that's always being brought up I also think about the North Carolina a few years ago where the driver just plowed into protesters killed one woman uh, is it not difficult for a driver to just say I my life was I thought my life was in danger and that's why I, I ran in and basically killed somebody I think that's the biggest concern that we have is just like really truly in that moment what is the thoughts and feelings of the driver are they truly um, um, are they truly in fear or are they just going to say that and most importantly I think what we've seen with some of these anti-protest bills which we've seen with the Oklahoma legislature unfortunately a lot um, is that maybe they're um, poorly written, so people are not given enough notice or guidance. What truly is impeding a drive, um, a roadway? Mm -hmm. Is it simply just being in the middle of like a, a, a foot outside of the, um, of the curb? 
And that's been our concern is really truly not enough guidance on truly how these could be impacted. Um, and then exa exactly with the anti-doxing, I think the biggest concern that we have is that because it was not scru scrutinized the writing, is that will journalists be journalists that are out there filming, you know, and maybe Facebook or yeah, Facebook living, mm -hmm. <laughs> live streaming, I guess, right. um, you know, is that going to be a problematic? Um, are they going to have to stop what they're doing to blur, you know, the personal information, specifically the badge number, which is one of them, um, one of the ways from the police officer. I will also say real quickly that that bill goes a little further because not only does it say police officers in that midst, it also allows for like elected and some county and, and legislative public officials. Mm -hmm. and, and that's our bigger concern is the public official part. The governor also signed a measure overhauling the state's human resources system. House Bill 1146 eliminates the state's Merit Protection Commission and the system of classified, unclassified, or at-will employees. Neva, how will this impact the state's nearly 35,000 workers? Well, I think, it, I think it's a significant impact. I think it's one of those bills, even uh, Representative Osborne talked about the fact that this is not one of those sexy bills, we call it, those, <laughs> right. those, those, those bills that everybody wants to talk about and tune up on social media and have an opinion and and there's a lot of uh, a lot of give and take this is something that's been slowly methodically mm -hmm. tediously worked on uh, 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 since about 2013 I mean uh, the o Oklahoma Public Employees Association and their executive director Sterling uh, Zierly mm -hmm. has uh, done a, a tremendous job working with lawmakers everyone getting to the table and addressing what is a you know what is a very significant issue I mean, when you talk about employee classifications, it's not just about uh, getting, uh, making the change between classified and, and non-classified employees. It's about making the process uh, better in terms of streamlining uh, grievances, uh, streamlining a process where um, the agency heads can be able to have more flexibility in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of incentivizing and rewarding folks that are hard, doing, doing good work. Mm -hmm. um, uh, very much like the private sector, and I think that's always been one of the things uh, folks outside government have looked at and, and really questioned is that uh, that there's been just kind of this maze of uh, uh, too too much that's mired with uh, too much history and too much of the uh, kind of the political dimension from decades past. And I now now I think what we see is the opportunity for this to be a much more efficient, a much more fair and equi equitable system. And I think it's a win for em the employees, state employees. I think it's a win for the taxpayers of Oklahoma. And I certainly think it's a an opportunity for these agencies to continue to do a better and better job of managing their people and getting better outcomes as a result of it. I certainly seeing Sterling Zierly out in support of something like this certainly makes you think, well, this is probably maybe a, maybe a good bill, but what, what are your thoughts on it, Tamaya? I think the concern, and I just would really question, um, talking about the state employees, how, what was their impact or what was their conversations about? Mm -hmm. um, the grievance process is really important for all employees and making sure, and by removing some of those kind of steps, mm -hmm. I think the concern could be, you know, are, is everyone getting a fair shot um, around um, by bringing any grievance that they have? I think due process um, requirements are actually sometimes pretty good. They allow for, again, if fairness is where we really were trying to get to, allows for fairness, allows for all sides to be heard. I'm not saying that they would move through grievance process quickly, but I think there are reasons why these things are um, are in place. And I think just my biggest concern is just 
um, was a lot of deference given to agency heads and leaders as opposed to um, state employees who are truly going to be impacted. Well, and I think when we look at the, the that whole process that they were talking about, this grievance process, which really, uh, you, I mean, you're talking about suspensions, demotions, you're talking about uh, what would be viewed uh, or argued might be a punitive transfer, uh, something that is, uh, or, or just a termination itself. And so I think allowing for a process that is defined, uh, and I, I think the other thing that comes about as a result of this is that all of this is going to be brought from an HR standpoint under the uh, under one entity for you know for the state that ultimately will be under the umbrella of OMES but I think when you look at this I mean going forward there will be a lot more scrutiny I think again a lot more accountability and a lot more transparency and we've talked about that all through the show today about how important that is so I think it is a breath of fresh air and I think you know we didn't see an uprising of state employees you know all of a sudden saying you know we've been sold out or this is not a good deal for us and everybody just got in a room and mm-hmm. and, and made a deal that some somebody or somebody's wanted that wasn't the case and I think uh, you have to applaud the effort of everyone, all of the folks that uh, were involved in this process, because it finally came to fruition this year. This is something the governor campaigned on. This is something he felt strongly about. So clearly it's a big win uh, for his administration. But more than that, they were able to iron out, work out the very intricate details of that, that uh, came to uh, make this possible, not only to get it passed, but get it signed into law. And Tamaya Neva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.